Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Scott Lincecum offers a few ideas to make our battered supply chains a little less brittle. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey talks about how Arizona has led the way in some healthcare reforms. And Robert Corn Revere gets inside the mind of the censor. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. You may be surprised to learn that cryptocurrencies are, in a sense, infrastructure, at least if you're uh, following the Build Back Better plans of the uh, Biden administration. Some cryptocurrency regulation found their way into uh, that plan. But of course, the various federal agencies have plans for regulating crypto. And the people I'm talking to today, Norbert Michel, vice president and director of the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Jennifer Schulp, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. We're talking about cryptocurrencies uh, and what regulation, if there is to be any, what it ought to look like. So first of all, welcome. Thanks, Caleb. Good to be here. So let's begin with what we understand from a few years ago. I guess, was it the IRS that was the first agency to jump in with some kind of uh, e- even just defining cryptocurrencies for the purpose of taxation. Was that the first statement made by a federal agency on what crypto is and is not for the purposes of uh, regulation? I couldn't swear to that being the first. That could be, but um, I know that we ended up very in a very short period of time, we ended up with the IRS saying that it was an asset for tax purposes, which probably correct. Uh, The SEC saying that it's a security virtually in any manifestation that we find. And then the CFTC saying that it would be a commodity. (laughs) So, but that all happened in a very short period of time, I think. Isn't that right, John? That's right. And don't forget, Treasury also referred to it as a currency Uh, at some points in time as well. So we've had crypto called everything by every government agency that is involved in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And 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 aren't all of those correct in a way? Aren't uh, all of those characterizations yeah. sort of right? Yeah, that's part of the problem. <laughs> and none of the uh, the the Commodities Futures Trading Commission Act stuff uh, or, or where the Commodity Futures Trading Commission gets their authority or the SEC gets their authority those laws uh, go back to the 1930s. Um, the IRS is worried about something completely different than what the SEC is worried about. Um, so, and Treasury as well. This is closer to the IRS, but still, these are all they're all worried about different aspects of the same sorts of things. Um, and because crypto is not crypto as is other crypto, it's just it can be. You can have different types of cryptocurrencies and use them for different different things. It makes the problem a lot harder. Yeah, there are lots of different features. Bitcoin's feature was that it was crypto when there wasn't any other crypto. Right. And uh, since then, uh, various creators, people who have created different cryptocurrencies have built in features and different ways of proving that you own what you own or different ways of earning on a network, that is to say, deriving benefits from having a machine that's providing processing power to the network itself. Right. And so none of that, uh, none of those particular, the particular elements of each individual cryptocurrency seem dramatically different uh, depending on what the features are of that cryptocurrency. Well, and what the purpose is of the individual cryptocurrencies, too. In fact, in many ways, a lot of crypto doesn't have things in common with other crypto. And calling everything that's digital crypto adds to a little bit of the confusion on this front. Um, It's easy to talk about crypto as, as something brand new, but really crypto is a lot of different things serving a lot of different purposes. 
So what what are what are some of the purposes that that cryptocurrencies exist? Obviously, you two have written uh, so a, a bit about stable coins that serves a pretty clear purpose of tracking a monetary unit that exists in so-called meat space, the real world. Yeah, I mean, one of them is. Like, as you said, the stablecoin is uh, to promote the use of a digital medium of exchange. And that hasn't really caught on yet, but that's still basically what it is. It's a representation of another fiat currency, a direct, supposedly anyway, it's supposed to be a direct representation of another fiat currency. Uh, you have other cryptocurrencies that really just sort of serve as your basic securities or our basic assets. I shouldn't say securities, your basic asset. Uh, you have the NFTs, which are something different. Uh, <laughs> I mean, those are right off the top of my head. Those are three that are different. And from the, from the IRS's standpoint, it's almost as though they don't really have to care. And that, in that sense, they're right. You, if you buy one under current law, if you buy one and then you and then you sell it or spend it, you're responsible for a capital gain, so or a tax on a capital gain. Um, so, for any of the three that I just mentioned, so th th that doesn't mean that you're using them the same way. Um, and in a lot of cases, you have crypto uh, assets that are just used on the payment side more so than anything else. So you have this instant settlement feature and actually stable coins do that right now. Um, so that's, that's four different uses that I came up with off the top of my head. <laughs> and I'll throw another one in too, because when we talk about the Securities and Exchange Commission's interest here, um, their interest initially started with what was known as an initial coin offering, which can tend to look like something like Bitcoin or Ether. But it can also look more like a securities stock certificate, um, where the coin itself is really just a manifestation of the investment that someone made. Um, so that's another use um, that is kind of digitizing securities. And that's not to say that all crypto is securities, because that's not right. But it's another form of, of a crypto asset or, or a crypto currency. Right. And a lot of the second generation and now I guess third generation cryptocurrencies that uh, exist, they, they some of the features that they lay out, the people who are marketing these things and trying to get one developers to try to create uh, projects that are that are have this cryptocurrency uh, uh, involved deeply. They point out use cases and say, hey, if you tried to do X, with Bitcoin, it would take you X number of weeks or days to to get something done. But with our system, it's very fast. It uh, has all these other other features, and so use cases matter a lot. And the uses that crypto can be put to, I can. I'll give you another example: being able to stream video quickly across the internet. There are cryptocurrencies that exist primarily for that purpose uh, as well. And so I can imagine being a government uh, agency saying, hey, well, this exists, therefore we must regulate it, um, and having a, a real hard time trying to come up with a way uh, of doing so. You you have written about stable coins, but, 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 and, and we'll talk about your proposal for, for that as well, but what should be the governing principles that ought to uh, oversee how the financial regulators and uh, these uh, federal agencies look at stablecoins? How should they think about them uh, when deciding whether or not to issue a regulation on them? I think the overriding sort of principle for all of financial market regulations, and I get into trouble on this all the time because I think it applies to banks as well. But if you ask me what I think the principles should be, the principles should be disclosure and transparency. That's it. That is what should be guiding all of our financial market regulation. Um, the, what we've done, however, is shift towards uh, 
mandated safety and soundness, paternalistic safety and soundness, financial stability mandates, which nobody can really define, by the way. Um, and that's a problem. Uh, that's the absolute wrong direction. But we've been heading that way steadily for at least 100 years. Uh, Jennifer, this is a young industry. Yes, it is. Uh, and, and we've barely, I, I can't help but feel like we've barely scratched the surface of what uh, kinds of financial innovations crypto uh, as an idea could give us. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that what we hear a lot in regulatory discussions about crypto, um, often coming from people that are skeptical about its promise, is, well, you know, I don't really see a use case for that. Or maybe that's a marginal improvement on what we have now, but, but crypto is really not that revolutionary. And that's the wrong way to approach regulation in this space. It is a young industry. Um, it's a young way of thinking about a lot of different problems, from securities to payments to banking. Um, and the potential is what we need to be careful not to tamp down with regulation that's backward-looking instead of forward-looking. So for me, I, I completely agree with, with Norbert that that transparency and disclosure are kind of the touchstones of, of a good regulatory regime here. But a good regulatory regime also needs to be very careful to not stifle innovation in the process. And what we've seen over the past several years is that the confusion in the current regulatory regime, where you've got a number of different players constantly staking out new jurisdictional battles, um, has left the, the burgeoning crypto industry a little bit confused and a little bit gun-shy about how to continue to innovate because they're never quite sure who's regulating them when or how. So we hear a lot about clarity. Uh, I think clarity and certainty are something that are useful in thinking about a regulatory regime here as well. Yeah, we, are, we agree here. So, uh, Jennifer, a lot of people own crypto uh, on exchanges, <laughs> uh, and this introduces yet another wrinkle for uh, trying to uh, for agencies that would like to regulate uh, this these products. Um, what do we know about how these exchanges function, exist, and uh, obviously, this is a huge sums of money changing hands at a very rapid clip. Uh, what do we know about them? Well, it depends on which one you're talking about. Um, some we know very little about um, because they're headquartered offshore um, or have chosen not to be involved really with the U.S. regulatory regime. Um, others have been more open to the U.S. regulatory regime or in, open to the principles of the U.S. regulatory regime in, in disclosure and transparency. Um Crypto exchanges operate differently than what you think of your securities exchange for a number of reasons, including the blockchain issues and, and the digital wallets and, and lots of complicated, in-depth technical things. But they operate differently in that if you are working on a securities exchange, that exchange is heavily regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, if you have a commodities or derivative exchange, that is heavily regulated by the CFTC. Crypto exchanges are in their own zone right now where it's not clear at all that either of these regulations or these, these regulatory agencies have power over them. Um, and again, that raises the question of clarity. It raises some consumer protection issues, but I, I don't think the right answer, which is one that we've heard from the SEC, the SEC says, no, 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 we need to regulate all of them, and they should be regulated like stock exchanges. The CFTC has said, no, 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 we regulate all of them, and they should be regulated like derivatives exchanges. And that's not necessarily the right answer here because there's there's other issues at play leading to the resulting with the technology, um, the global nature of this, a lot of other questions that the simple answer of, oh, oh, it's just like the New York Stock Exchange does not does not apply. 
Right. And, and uh, you know, if you have an account at Fidelity or Schwab or uh, Vanguard or some other uh, place that essentially is holding your assets in your name uh, on their uh, platform, they themselves are not the exchange. Right. Whereas with uh, Binance or some of these other crypto Coinbase or these other sort of crypto exchanges, they are, in addition to providing a market, that is to say, facilitating trades as an exchange would, they're also holding your assets for you. And so it is It is interesting. So uh, Norbert, in, in watching these various regulatory agencies fight about who has what authority with one another, um, is is there any – Aside from congressional action, is there any anyone to just say no, no, no? Clearly, this is this falls within X agency and not these other ones over here. Because I I can see, you know, I'm I'm not for regulating any of these uh, cryptocurrencies beyond uh, providing information to the public to make good decisions, um, but. All of them seem to have a at least statutory claim to being able to to have the reg, their regulations control the issue. Yeah, I don't think there is a simple, clear answer. I, I agree with Jen. There's, there's little aspects of this uh, that can go where you can go either way, and I think for me, in a way, it highlights um, a, a, a long running problem that we have, where we have both the SEC and the CFTC who both regulate capital markets. And we've created this distinction that's really just a silly definitional thing. Um, you know, we have commodities, which are just so wildly different than securities. And I'm I've never been sold on that ever. Um, you know, these are these are capital market trades. That's what they are. And if you want to say that you know we need one capital markets regulator and one banking regulator, okay. If you want to say that we need one financial regulator, I'm kind of okay with that too. If the regulations are very different than the regulations that we have now, um, because the again, my by going back to the overriding principle for me, it's not about making sure that nobody loses money. It's not about ensuring some ephemeral financial stability concept. It's about fraud protection and fraud mitigation, transparency and relevant disclosures. That's what should be guiding uh, all of those financial transactions. All right. Regulations of those financial transactions. Let's talk about stable coins now, which is another, uh, which we alluded to earlier, is a, it seems to be of particular concern to the Biden administration it seems to be of particular concern to the Federal Reserve. Why do they <laughs> care, especially about this particular product that, uh, as we mentioned earlier, tracks some central bank currency's value and is a an attempt to uh, create, I guess, a proxy or a derivative, in a sense, of yeah. a central bank currency? The funny thing is they didn't really care until Facebook, I guess that's now Meta, but uh, when Facebook announced their Libra project, stable coins, uh, that's when everything went into high gear. Before that, you can go and look and, and central banks were making statements, but they were just kind of, you know, we need to worry about this eventually. This isn't a big deal right now sort of thing. It wasn't. Uh, an eminent problem. And then Facebook made their announcement and all of a sudden, uh, this is a big deal. And it, again, I, I look at this and I think, well, you know, the, the real reason that they're so concerned with it is because they see some sort of tokenization of the dollar, this other, this new version of this, of the digital dollar. Uh, but it's not something that's being done by an institution that they control. And that is a problem for them. That I still think that underlies the push that you see and this all of us this this emergency sort of nature of having to regulate these things. And, and we've talked uh, before for the Cato Daily podcast on issues sort of related to this. Uh, but the Biden administration wants 
Congress to do something, yeah. whatever that something is about stablecoins, what does the Biden administration want to be done? They argued for Congress to come out with a new law that says only insured depository institutions, what we know as banks, can issue uh, stablecoins. Nobody else has to be a federally insured bank. That's what they want. <laughs> and that's the opposite of what, you, what we want. <laughs> so Jennifer, what does that look like uh, in terms of banks um, being the sole uh, issuers of these products? What what concerns you about that? Well, I mean, it completely eviscerates the competition that's happening in, happening in the space right now. Um, obviously, the barriers to banking are very high. Um, banks like it that way, um, although the government also has played a very strong role in, in keeping the barriers to banking high. And if banks are the only ones allowed to issue stable coins, that's going to cut down on innovation in the space and cut down on competition potentially cut down on um, the inclusiveness of being able to use stable coins or other alternate payment methods because we'd be going back into a banking system that has had problems with that in the past. Um, and there's no particularly good reason for why the banks should be the only ones to be operating in this space. Um, I think it's also worth noting that if banks are the only ones that are allowed to issue stable coins because they're federally insured, that means that all of us here as U.S. taxpayers end up on the hook for stable coins. Um, and there's not a great reason for that either. Uh, Norbert, is, is the existence of stable coins, are the existence of stable coins uh, effectively or does the Fed fear a sort of untracked expansion of the money supply they all say that <laughs> i i i don't i don't see it that way because it's a substitute yes uh but to the extent that it's still tied to the monetary base it's still tied to a dollar uh you know that's uh, that's all that matters and they can control the base and whether we're using travelers checks more or whether we're using stable coins more or credit cards more, it doesn't really matter. All right. So uh, Congress uh, has just passed the so-called Build Back Better uh, plan, and there are cryptocurrency regulations in it. Why? <laughs> uh. Oh. Is, is, is it's just a massive bill that's de that's very likely to pass and yeah. has so many provisions well, that we put our little parochial <laughs> thing in there and that's yeah. that's the end of the, the end of the story. And they're looking for we can a, ask why about a yeah, lot a pay for <laughs> a, they they found an area that they think is being undertaxed at the moment and it's a good way for them to find an area that they think they can say yeah. can pay for some of these programs. Um, the Joint Committee on Taxation says $28 billion over 10 years by uh, putting in some rules regarding cryptocurrencies there. What are they actually uh, – as we record this, I think Joe Biden is – the ink is still wet on yeah. Joe Biden's signature well, yeah. uh, on this plan. So what what is – what's in it? Say, and in fact, actually, as we were recording this, they – Senator Lummis and I can't remember who else have – already introduced a bill to change those provisions in the Senate. <laughs> so the crypto provisions of that bill have to do with attempting to better monitor transactions in order to track them through the taxation process. Um, it does that pretty poorly by broadly defining broker in the context of crypto, and in a way that has a tendency to sweep up a lot of people involved with crypto, like miners or folks that are involved in development, who don't actually have a role in really transacting crypto in the same way we, we would think of 
doing any other sort of taxable transaction. Um, it asks them to make reports. Um, it asks them to provide information to the IRS um, on information that they probably don't have on hand and puts them in, say, a difficult, if not impossible, position where they can't comply with the IRS, the IRS's mandates, and may very well look at taking the business overseas, getting out of the business entirely, because you don't want to be operating in such a way that the IRS uh, finds you out of compliance. And they don't really care if, if people do leave. They don't. I mean, it's uh, it goes back to this whole... I think stablecoin issue of you know, it's not it, it at the end of all this. If crypto is in a very very widespread use, it does represent competition um, at some point, right? And I like I like to think of it long term. Long term um, is sort of like the gold standard. Going off the gold standard, you had Federal Reserve notes that were first backed by gold. Uh, Gold was supposed to be the money, so you have a substitute for the gold. Eventually, in short order, nobody's using gold, everybody's using the notes. Well, that makes it easy to delink from the gold, right? So you could envision, if you were a central banker, <laughs> you could envision in the long term everybody using all kinds of different cryptocurrencies and not switching back and forth and getting out of the crypto and into the dollar, right? You, that is not an implausible scenario in the long term. And that's just not something they're interested in promoting. No, and I think that the international nature of crypto on that front also gives yep. them some heartburn. Um, yep. Where if you're not... Massive, massive, right, massive yeah. amounts of money can move within yeah. seconds yeah. from one part of the planet to another and no central bank and no regulatory agency really can have anything to say about it. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's the complete I'm, opposite I'm, of how they operate. <laughs> I'm, lo I'm looking for the problem with that exactly, but... Uh, You're not going to find one on this yeah. call. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Well, well, tell me, so with to the extent that we, we understand federal regulators are going to do what they do, which is try to regulate, even if they don't necessarily understand the, the thing that they're... Uh, regulating or un the, understand the implications of their own regulations. What do you two recommend for uh, trying for agencies trying to tackle this pro this quote unquote problem uh, posed by stablecoins? Uh, the proposal that we have on our on our in our stablecoin paper briefing paper is we think a very straightforward one. It says that if you uh, sign up to be a limited purpose investment company. That follows some very basic uh, reserve requirements, which are basically what the industry says they're doing. And you follow some very basic disclosure requirements, you're good to go. Uh, the SEC is going to regulate that and monitor that. And that's it. That's all we need to do. Yeah. So that's the touch touchstone that Norbert talked about before, transparency and disclosure. Um, and we think that should be simple. Yep. All right. We will tr continue to track this issue uh, of cryptocurrency, and I know we've talked about it a lot in the last, uh, just in the last six weeks. Uh, but we will do that. Uh, we will continue to do that as this industry develops, hopefully with a, as light a touch uh, of regulation as possible. Norbert Michelle and Jennifer Schulp, thank you. And you can read uh, more of our work on on that issue at our website, Cato.org. The pandemic introduced a variety of shocks to the global economy, but the policies already on the books didn't help supply chains adjust appropriately. Now we have a serious problem getting goods from producers to buyers. On the Cater Daily Podcast, Scott Lincecum offers some advice to lawmakers and the president. Scott, as best as you can tell, why are Americans in particular having trouble purchasing and receiving in a timely fashion goods that they would like to purchase from overseas. Sure. So some of it is just um, the pandemic doing its thing. Um, 
over the last year or so, um, there have been really substantial imbalances um, in uh, national supply and demand patterns. Um, you know, our our global supply chains developed over decades um, based on somewhat predictable and consistent patterns of supply and demand. You know, sure, uh, import and export volumes would change every year a little, but uh, shipping companies and trains and truckers and all those links in the supply chain could kind of figure things out and they set levels for that. Well, a global pandemic hits and all of a sudden economies are closing down and reopening. Uh, countries are getting vaccinated at different times. Um, and all of this is going to have uh, an impact on those supply and demand patterns. Uh, you combine that with um, a increase in the United States in Americans' uh, desire for goods and comfort and comfort with e-commerce, and you have jacked up that demand even more. Um, and then you have that demand hitting some pretty significant supply issues in places, um, particularly in Asia, that have adopted really onerous COVID mitigation strategies, zero COVID policies that essentially shut down ports and factories eh, when there's an outbreak. Um, so all that together is inevitably going to put stress on the supply chain. And so a lot of this is just, again, the pandemic doing its thing. But uh, the, there, there are also a lot of government and other policies that are adding to our supply chain woes. And that's, I think, what's what's the more important lesson for, for policy world on this is that, um, yeah, you know, our supply chain did develop over decades, but it developed in, uh, in significant part uh, in response to um, policies that we've put in place that have actually and intentionally decreased uh, efficiency and flexibility in the system. And so I'll give you a, a couple examples. Um, I think one of the big ones is at the ports. Um, the longshoremen unions there have uh, immense leverage um, through, uh, because they, they essentially control all the labor, particularly on, on the West Coast, but even on the East Coast, even in right-to-work states, they have a lot of power, um, which of course enforced through things like the National Labor Relations Board and the rest. And they have not only have negotiated contracts with high wages, um, but there's a lot of inflexibility in the system. So very regimented shifts, time and a half for nights and weekends, um, and difficulty of adding uh, additional unionized workers. Uh, but the bigger thing, I think, is that uh, these contracts specifically prohibit automation. So uh, you combine all these things together, and U.S. ports are some of the least efficient in the world. Uh, there was a World Bank ranking uh, a year ago that that ranked Los Angeles and Long Beach about 330th out of 350 ports around the world. Um, even uh, our more efficient ports uh, don't even crack the top 50. And so we have a system, we have a very inefficient port system. Now, Combined and and so our trucking system, our trains, all of that really uh, have grown around very inefficient ports. That you know, in in bad times, that didn't really matter much, or in good times, that didn't really matter much. But when things get stressed, you know, a, a additional efficiency would be would be useful. Now, compounding that are a lot of other policies in there. Um, for example. Uh, the the good old Jones Act, which you know restricts uh, the coastwise shipping between U.S. ports uh, to American-owned and invested in flag vessels. Well, uh, the Jones Act has made coastwise shipping really cost prohibitive, so nobody does it. You, nobody ships, even though it should be the most efficient way to ship, say, an orange from Florida to Boston. Uh, nobody does it because it's really expensive. Well, that means that. Uh, it puts additional pressure on rail and trucking capacity. So that orange is now on a truck going up I-95. We have trade policies that uh, our anti-dumping and countervailing duty system, which is essentially on autopilot, uh, we just slapped tariffs of 221% 
on chassis from China, the largest producer of chassis. Now, chassis are what trucks use. You put a container on the chassis, the truck links up to the chassis and hauls it off, right? Well, we're actually having a chassis shortage right now. And uh, trucking, trucking companies, freight companies aren't going to buy additional chassis from China. There's not enough domestic production um, and because of these, of these tariffs. And there, the law totally prohibits the government from uh, suspending or delaying these duties uh, or even considering broader economic harms when applying. I mean, they just they just automatically in the middle of a shipping crisis in May slap 221 percent tariffs on on chassis. So a lot of these decisions that were made at some point in the past, not during a uh, supply crunch or not during a global pandemic, have essentially taken off the table decisions yeah. that individual market actors might like to have made to uh, deal with and effectively get their jobs done. Exactly. And another big one. So, you know, there's a worker shortage all over the country. And uh, if you talk to uh, industry experts, logistics pros, they say that one of the big challenges that the supply chains are having right now they can't get enough workers at the warehouses. Uh, they can't find enough truckers to haul haul goods. So that, of course, causes containers to back up at the ports. The ports move even slower. Well, um, we have a backlog of about 1.2 million immigrants uh, that have been issued visas but haven't been uh, allowed in the country, per our colleague David Beer. Goldman Sachs estimates that that is putting substantial pressure on on the labor shortage that we're having due to some COVID factors as well. Um, and again, it's contributing to these supply chain problems. Now, another thing we've done is that uh, the U.S. government negotiated as part of the NAFTA um, that we would allow trucks from Mexico, so Mexican freight companies, to operate on U.S. roads. So essentially hauling goods from Mexico to the United States or hauling goods in the United States. So Mexican trucking companies were supposed to be allowed to access the U.S. market. It's a free trade agreement, right? That would be one of the provisions. Well, the United States has never implemented this fully, uh, due in large part to opposition from the Teamsters Union and other trucking companies. Um, well, this uh, even, oh, and I should add, we had a pilot program that checked the safety and environmental compliance of these Mexican trucking companies, and they were found to be very safe. Uh, to have very few problems. Um, well, you know what? The, those restrictions uh, have have added additional uh, supply constraints, and they've done it in two ways. I mean, one, uh, Mexican trucks uh, and truckers that could be hauling goods between, say, uh, a port and a warehouse in in the United States, they can't they can't haul those goods. They're prohibited. But another thing is that the system now requires Mexican trucking companies to drop their goods at the U.S.-Mexico border. And then a U.S. truck picks it up at the border and then hauls it off. Well, that, of course, absorbs additional U.S. trucking capacity that could have, again, been, been inland somewhere, um, uh, soaking up some of this uh, excess demand that we're seeing right now. So again, uh, it's it's not that these things were uh, implemented during the pandemic, I mean, other than the tariffs, but they all have served to create a system that is more fragile, uh, less flexible um, than, than it should be, and thus exacerbating our supply chain crisis. So the U.S. Congress, as we as you will hear on this podcast repeatedly, has for decades delegated a whole lot of powers with respect to trade and uh, immigration uh, and a number of other issues. So with the toolkit that the president now has, and we can argue about whether it's appropriate for him to have that or not, with that toolkit, what can the president do right now without right. any help to make things easier for producers and consumers to shake hands and be happy and transfer goods and money back and forth. You know, unfortunately, there aren't a ton of things he can do. Um, the, the 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 two things that I think he that he can do with the stroke of a pen are to nix President Trump's tariffs on steel and aluminum and on Chinese goods. So those chassis tariffs I mentioned, there are an additional 25 percent tariffs uh, under Section 301 of the U.S. law, which which President Biden could remove 
with a stroke of a pen. Now, that isn't going to solve the supply chain problems, but it's at least going to put a little downward pressure on prices and a little help for manufacturers. You know, manufacturers right now are paying hand over fist in terms of shipping costs and raw materials costs. So that'll help a little bit. Uh, but, but Biden can't actually touch those 200% tariffs. The law and Congress has made sure, you know, Congress has delegated a lot of tariff imposing authority. It hasn't imposed as much uh, tariff removal authority, which is quite telling, honestly. Um, and so unfortunately, those are are just going to be they're They're going to be here. They're kind of cemented. And there's a process for removing them. But that that takes some time. But I'll tell you another thing that Biden could do and uh, hopefully will do is uh, these immigrant visas. Right. I mean, these are. These are uh, consulate offices and uh, immigrants that have been vetted um, and U.S. consulate offices that that should be open. I mean, we have widely available vaccines um, and, you know, we, we should be uh, uh, at this point, you know, uh, processing these visas and letting these these people come here and work here. Um, and so, you know, again, David uh, had a, on your podcast, I believe, you know, talked about some of the things Biden could do quite quickly to alleviate some uh, of the worker shortage there. Um, but, uh, you know, unfortunately, beyond that, you know, I think that Biden deserves a little bit of credit uh, trying to get the ports to stay open 24-7. I'm sure he worked out some deal with the Longshoremen Union to get that. Um but what we've seen and what the ports and industry experts have said is that that's really just going to be a drop in the bucket. And and again, uh, not to sound like a broken record, it's because the system evolved over a long period of time to reflect inefficiencies at the ports. And you can't just snap your fingers and suddenly have uh, port capacity, uh, shipping container capacity, uh, trucking capacity to reflect a more efficient port system. It's just it's going to take uh, some time. Um, and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see some movement there. And, and hopefully, you know, Congress will learn some lessons on on things, we reforms we need to make. Scott Lincecum is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Arizona is among just a handful of states to take some bold, free market-centered health care reforms recently. And they've already had some success. Republican Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona joined Cato's Jeff Singer and Gene Healy to discuss the policies that have worked for Arizona and why other states could do it too. It's hard to talk about any silver lining during the pandemic because it's just been such a brutal 18 plus months on all of us. But we were challenged to balance lives and protect lives in our state and try to balance that along with, with livelihoods. And the idea of telehealth and how we could get people in front of a physician or in, internist with as little friction as, as possible was one of the things that came through COVID. And we had some really great stories from citizens in our state. A mom who lived in Tucson with a severely autistic daughter that for each appointment would have to drive up to, to Phoenix Children's Hospital, which is more than a 90-minute drive with no traffic, that was able to get her child in front of some of the best physicians in the world you know, over her iPad, get the, the care and comfort and prescription that she needed for her daughter. And then, of course, the people that were sick or not feeling well or just coming down with the flu or wanted that initial connection with a physician on what their situation was, was brought to light through executive order under health, public health emergencies during COVID and something that we thought was a good idea going forward. We didn't want to see it go away. There were all kinds of good stories of people in out counties and rural areas that were able to access some of the finest doctors in the world in our more urban areas. So we've started to move that through our legislature. We're able to get a majority vote in both chambers. And we've done so much reform uh, to open up these markets that, of course, there are the special interests out there and folks that are going to push back and want to protect medicine as they see it sometimes as a guild 
that uh, should, should not have this type of competition. But I, because we've had these successes along the way, I think we're able to point to them and, and to get the votes and overcome the opposition that, that happens as you're trying to eliminate or clear regulations. You know, Governor, um, when this was being considered in Arizona, I spoke to legislators on both sides of the aisle, and it seemed most of the response I was getting, regardless of which side of the aisle they were on, was this is a no-brainer. What, you know, what's not to like about it? When I testified uh, in front of Idaho's legislature remotely on a sim, they, they were considering similar legislation. Virtually every one of the uh, professional associations, the Idaho Medical Association, Dental Association, you name it. Uh, they were all for uh, legislation that would allow uh, the practitioners to get paid more for telehealth services within state, but they were very resistant to the idea of allowing out-of-state healthcare practitioners to provide healthcare to their residents. Uh, how did, I didn't see that kind of resistance in Arizona. In fact, I, I asked the... Uh, the lobbyists for the Arizona Medical Association where they stood on the bill and they said they were supporting it, which I was pleasantly surprised to learn that. How do, how do you describe and explain the difference? Well, I can't really speak on another state legislature or the power of lobbyists or special interest in other states. I came from the private sector. I mean, I had never been down to the state capitol. There were no tax incentives for chocolate-dipped waffle cones. I was busy building my business and raising my family. So I think not having those relationships in the political class or among the lobbyists or the special interests allowed me to, in, in many ways, of course, listen, but not be beholden to them in, in any way, shape, or, or form. These have been good policies that have provided opportunity for the people of the state of Arizona, and I ran on that type of, of governance and actually called out the special interests in my first inauguration speech and state of the state, so I think they, they knew that they were in for a different type of governor. You know, a thing I've noticed also during your tenure is uh, there's been a really good reform in the area of scope of practice, which is another area that usually gets resistance from entrenched incumbents. Yes. So uh, you may be aware that I made a lot of enemies out of my anesthesiologist that I work with when I uh, had an op-ed in the uh, Arizona Republic supporting your allowing uh, CRNAs, nurse anesthetists, to practice independent of doctors. Um, and generally speaking, you've been, uh, Arizona has been among the leaders in expanding the scope of practice so that different healthcare professionals could practice to the, to the extent to which they are trained. Um, one, uh, one area I think we could still do further good on is uh, allowing, um, taking full advantage of pharmacists', pharmacists training. We learned during this pandemic, for example, you know, they're performing COVID tests and giving us vaccinations. So why can't we allow them, for example, to perform flu swab tests and prescribe Tamiflu, which could treat flu early. Right now, they're not allowed to do that, but they could do it for COVID. Um, recently, uh, Arizona became, I think, the 17th state to allow pharmacists to give out uh, birth control pills. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has uh, been saying for like 20 years that this doesn't, this should be over the counter, but for political reasons, it's, it's remains prescription only. Uh, I would have, uh, in, in the case of Arizona, it's by standing orders, so the uh, it, it could only the pharmacist could give it only if a health policy director uh, gives a standing order, a direct you know director of public health on a county or state level. I think better would be to allow them to, to prescribe it because that way, it, it, you know, it's like an executive order. A standing order kind of is always lasts as long as the person's in charge. And another thing that we could do is have uh, pharmacists prescribe pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis for HIV. For HIV. Uh, they're already allowed to do that now in Colorado and in California. I think that will go a long way towards fighting the HIV epidemic. Well, a lot of the ideas you're bringing up, I think, are, are interesting ideas and certainly ones we'd want to do more homework on and, and 
quite possibly pursue. You're, you're right in terms of how we've gotten rid of regulations, how we've expanded the scope of service. I'm not from the medical profession, but I didn't realize how many anesthesiologists I had in my personal network as we expanded that the CN, CRNA uh, protocol. And uh, the idea of this came through our legislature this past session, that they could prescribe birth control at the pharmacy level. I think there's a, a lot more we can do on those fronts. When I came into office, I really looked at states that I knew were already doing a good job and just wanted to t- take those model practices or legislation and apply it in the state of Arizona. Now we're in a position where we've accomplished a lot of that. And of course, we want to continue to move the ball down court, but we don't have the same ready examples around the country of, of what policy is, is working out in the marketplace and um, has, has been uh, thoroughly vetted. If I could suggest uh, at the risk of of, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be presumptuous, but another reform in this area uh, that we do have experience on five state levels, uh, Iowa, Illinois, um, Idaho, New Mexico, and Louisiana allow doctorate-level clinical psychologists who've had training in psychopharmacology uh, to prescribe psychiatric meds. Uh, in most states, including Arizona, uh, and of course not every... Uh, doctorate level psychologist wants to do this or feels qualified, but those who are, if they feel that a patient needs a psychiatric med to help in the talk therapy, they have to send the patient to either a psychiatrist or a primary care doctor to write the prescription, which is an extra expense, uh, an extra visit, time off work. And in, in the cases of primary care doctors, which would happen more in a rural area, sometimes the psychologist knows more about the medication and a dose and how to monitor it, monitor it than the primary care doctor does and has to tell them about it. So uh, I, w- I w- would hope we could look into uh, exp- expanding the scope of practice of doctorate-level clinical psychologists so, so that they can uh, save patients this extra expense and, and an extra inconvenience. We've been able to, to eliminate in Arizona 2,700 regulations. When we came into office, I said to my team, how many regulations are there in the state of Arizona? And nobody could get the answer. It actually took about 18 months. We finally found 11,000 regulations at the state level. Uh, Now, some regulations are needed, you know, for public health or public safety. But if you think about that, that 2,700 regulations that we were able to eliminate have resulted in a $150 million tax cut to, to the people of Arizona without costing the general fund one penny. So some of the thoughts and suggestions that you're making are things that we want to dig into and, uh, and, and better understand. Doug Ducey is the Republican governor of Arizona. The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder is the new book by Cato adjunct scholar Robert Korn Revere. The book explores how censors operate and why they've worn out their welcome in society at large. The book explains how the same tactics were tried and eventually failed in the 20th century with efforts to censor music, comic books, television, and other forms of popular entertainment. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. So... Welcome to the Cato Institute for an in-person book forum. In my particular case, for a variety of reasons, it's been almost three years since I've done this. For others, it will be probably something like a year and a half. It's good to see everyone, both here at the Cato Institute in our auditorium, and also, as ever, joining us online. Our book today that we will be talking about is Robert Korn Revere's book, The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder, a book that is just now appearing with Cambridge University Press and will be discussed in depth today. Um, Just in terms of some administrative housekeeping, uh, I would remind you, or I'm told to remind you, to please keep your mask on at all times inside the Cato Institute, except when we're eating or drinking, which will come later today, as it always has. 
So I thought we would start today uh, with uh, a reminder to everyone that today is the anniversary of one of the most consequential events in the long or short history of Homo sapiens. And by that, I mean, of course, today is the 1,709th anniversary of the Battle of Milvian Bridge. In that battle, Constantine became the sole emperor of the Roman Empire after one of their perpetual uh, fights over who would be number one. The loser of the Battle of Milvian Bridge, one Maxentius, notice you don't remember his name, you know Constantine, so don't lose battles if you want to be known forever. Maxentius drowned in the Tiber River, then had his head cut off, which was then carried around Rome. Now, there are a lot of problems with the United States. Certainly here at the Cato Institute, we're not going to deny that. But it still remains true that neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump lost the Battle of the 14th Street Bridge, drowned in the Potomac, and then had their heads carried around DC. On a more serious point, I think there's something relevant to this anniversary for our topic today. Because of course, Constantine's victory and because of his religious interpretation of that victory, Christianity became fused with the Roman state, became the dominant religion it was and would remain for centuries. And that, in a sense, Christianity, like other religions, became both a threat to freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and a limitation on the state in some regards as the years passed. And as Christianity itself split up, of course, as the overarching Roman Empire gave way to the future, some Christian sects also became had reason to want to have freedom of thought and speech. So the Battle of Milvian Bridge should remind us, and also the fact that Christianity itself was suppressed prior to that battle, should remind us that times change, that who is dictating the censorship often becomes the censor later on. So today's book, if you read in this area, or indeed you read the general uh, literature on this, is uh, not about the normal terms of our debate. Mostly we talk about, and have good reason to talk about, freedom of speech, why it's good, why it needs to be protected. This book is about that, but it also looks at these issues from the point of view of the censor tries to understand the censor's point of view and the dilemma that they face in being a censor. I have to say, I want to congratulate Robert Corn Revere, a longtime friend and a longtime friend of the Cato Institute for having written this book. It was really important for our particular time, I think. One in which freedom of speech has come into question in ways that it hasn't been in the past. I also just want to express my awe and admiration that while working as a full-time lawyer, he was also able to write this book. So we'll begin today, as we always do at Cato, with a word from the author and then two commentators whom I shall introduce when their time comes. Robert Corn Revere is a leading First Amendment attorney in the United States. He's a partner at the DC firm of Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. He successfully argued the case United States versus Playboy Entertainment Group in 2000, in which the Supreme Court ruled as unconstitutional a section of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which limited the transmission of explicit, sexually explicit programming. As lead counsel to a group of Virginia citizens, he had previously successfully challenged on First Amendment grounds a restrictive internet policy at a public library. 
again, that involved Loudoun County, which is once again in the news. Some things never change, eh? In recent years, Corn Revere has been successful in representing college and university students battling, citizen, uh, bat battling not citizenship, but censorship on campus. He served as chief counsel of the Federal Communications Interim Chair James Quello and co-author of Modern Communications Law. He's written on a wide variety of First Amendment issues, including regulation of the internet, broadcasts, indecency, and flag burning. But the most important thing, from my point of view and from our point of view, he is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Bob, I'm delighted we're here together to celebrate your new book and to, in the spirit of free speech, have counter speech perhaps and criticisms. Thanks, John. And uh, thanks to the Cato Institute for hosting this event. Um, thank all of you for braving the, the zombie apocalypse to come out and be here in person. Uh, thanks to the people who are joining us uh, by Zoom. Hopefully uh, this will be uh, somewhat enjoyable anyway. I guess you can tell. Sometimes you can tell a book by its cover. Uh, and this is one that I, I uh, went to uh, an independent person who had been recommended to me, a wonderful designer named Alex Libertazzi, who I think really captured the spirit of the book. As I was writing it, people would ask me, well, what's it about? And it's hard to describe in, in 10 words or less. There's not really an elevator pitch for this book because all I could really come up with was the psychology of censorship, which frankly sounds like a, a real snooze fest. And so I, I tried to come up with better ways of describing it, but it's, it does talk about law. It does talk about history, a little bit about uh, the mindset of censors. Um, but mainly it's about the culture of free expression. And by extension, also the more compact area, the law of free expression. And this is what I mean by um, the, the, uh, the mindset of the censor uh, versus what I see as the culture of free expression expressed by what Judge Learned Hand described as the spirit of liberty. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote about this uh, in uh, 1919 saying that persecution of expression of opinions is perfectly logical. If you have no doubt of your premises or your power and you want a certain result by your heart, you naturally express your wishes in law and sweep away all opposition. That's the mind of the censor in a nutshell. Um, and others have said this very much the same thing with H.L. Mencken saying moral crusader is very cocksureness is their chief source of strength. Um, Justice Anthony Kennedy talking about self-assurance has always been the mindset of the censor, um, as opposed to a spirit of liberty, which uh, Judge Hand, at the height of World War II, described as a spirit which is not too sure that it's right. It seeks to understand the minds of other men and women, and it uh, is the spirit which weighs our interests alongside our own without bias. Now, in that same speech, Judge Hand also talked about how if you don't have the spirit of liberty, then no law, no constitution will save us. Uh, that uh, you really have to have both the spirit of liberty, the spirit of creative expression, and the law that supports it. As many of you may know, uh, First Amendment jurisprudence really didn't develop into about a third of the way, or begin to develop, about a third of the way into the 20th century. So we were operating throughout the 19th century where the First Amendment might have called it a dead letter, but there were no cases establishing what that meant. And during that time, we, we saw arise someone who personified the spirit of the center, the mind of the censor, and that was Anthony Comstock. He started out as a vigilante in New York doing citizen's arrests. Within a year, he had gotten the attention of the, founder, or the, the heads of the YMCA in New York, who were among the richest and most influential men in America. They sponsored him for a trip to Washington, D.C. to lobby for uh, a new obscenity law. Now, this is where the mindset and the law meet. And you see this expressed in this law, which remarkably was adopted almost a year to the day from when he started his vigilante crusades. Uh, he was in Washington, had the support, and ended up with a law that, as you can see from the text here, is incredibly broad, defining obscenity uh, as any pamphlet, paper, writing, advertisement, circular, 
print, picture, drawing, or other article of an immoral nature, or any drug or medicine for the prevention of contraception or for causing unlawful abortion. This was the breadth of the law. And at the time, as I mentioned, there was no constitutional constraint on what could fall under this law. At the time, we didn't have any decisions under American law. And so we had to import law from England, uh, which personified Victorian morality. The prevailing case was Regina versus Hicklin, which was adopted by American courts, basically saying that obscenity is anything that tends to deprave uh, and corrupt those whose minds are open to such immoral influences, uh, regardless of artistic or, or literary merit. There was no looking at the work as a whole. Books could be condemned simply by their titles. As a matter of fact, courts at the time said that if books were sufficiently salacious, they wouldn't even allow them by the defense to be placed in the court's records because that would be unseemly. And so you had this toxic combination of a very broad law and um, no legal standards to constrain it, no constitutional law at the time. Uh, it was in this period, right after the passage of this law, Comstock helped form the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, the most appropriately named anti-vice society uh, you can think of. And by the way, this is their official seal, and it pretty much says it all. It shows on one hand an officer leading a miscreant off to jail, and on the other, a top-hatted Victorian gentleman dumping armloads of books into a fire. And that was exactly what Comstock was all about. Robert Korn Revere is a Cato adjunct scholar and author of The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder. Give the gift of rational optimism this holiday season. Ten Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know is a beautifully illustrated guide to how the world is actually faring. With quick-to-read and easily understandable facts on major global trends, this book will persuade you that the world, for the most part, is getting better. Buy your copy of 10 Global Trends now for the holiday delivery at Cato.org or wherever books are sold. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next year. Raise a glass, you've made it another year.